Alive and Kicking on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, I get the results after six months of supplementing for my brain and eye health. And we'll also hear about the rock bottom moment which made motivational speaker Nikki Bradley turn her life of illness and injury into empowerment. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I was away again for a couple of nights in County Clare. So I have been feeling this week like I'm well able for life. Um, And that's because for the last two weeks at the tail end of each one, I've headed off for hikes, saunas, sea swims, belly laughs and I have really been recharging, which isn't always possible, but I'm actually really enjoying the routine at the minute of walking my daughter to school and listening to a podcast on my way back up the road. And I've been sticking to taking 30 minutes to myself before anybody gets up. And even the afternoons I've been embracing, pottering around the kitchen, cooking dinner, helping with homework. I'm kind of on my way to being the Keller Cozen Gas Housewife of the Year at the minute. And for some reason, I'm really embracing that. Again, I think it comes down to recharging my batteries in between, which is leaving me able to take on the busyness of the week and to actually enjoy it. So I'm I'm sticking around this weekend. So let's see how I get on next week. And I'm on a roll of being monitored at the moment. In a bit, I'm going to be joined by Professor John Nolan, who tested me just over six months ago. And he's back with my results after focusing on supplementing for my brain and eye health. And I've also been wearing a heart type monitor for five days, checking my stress levels, my rest and recovery and my sleep patterns. Uh, So I'll find out the results of that in a few weeks time with the well-being advantage and I went to get my fitness markers tested as well, which I'll be sharing with you on next week's show. And it really interests me. People talk about manifesting and and all that, and it all gets a bit confusing. But sometimes life does throw you in a certain way. And monitoring seems to be a big focus of mine right now. And I think I told you at the start of the year that the word performance kept coming up for me. And that's partly to do maybe with hosting more events, speaking on stage. But It's mainly to do with performing at my best in all areas of my life. And when it comes to health and well-being, I'm fascinated with that side of it. So I will share all that I learned because I think we can all resonate with feeling exhausted, burnt out and wondering what can we tweak in our life so we can be at our best. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. But let's look then at this brain and eye health. Professor John Nolan of the Nutrition Research Centre in Waterford has been on the show a couple of times talking about supplements, calling for certification in the industry and later to talk about Remind and his research around macular or site degeneration, brain health and carotenoids, which can be found in colourful food. When he asked if I'd be interested in testing my own eye and brain health, I jumped at the chance. So I have been working with him and his colleague, Dr. Marina Green, since January this year. And John joins me in studio now. John, you're very welcome. Claire, it's a pleasure as always. And can you tell us a little bit, because I kind of put it into very much layman's terms, about your research and carotenoids and brain and macular degeneration? Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose we have the value now of over 20 years of work um, with the area of uh, carotenoid nutrition. So what that basically means is that from the healthy foods that we we eat, the plant-based foods, any of those foods that have colour, have these really important nutrients called carotenoids. 
and there's about 700 carotenoids in nature. Um, so when you look at kind of birds' feathers, when you look at colour on uh, fish skin, when you look at colours of peppers, um, these are all because of these natural pigments, if you like. They're pigments. So they're not vitamins, they're not minerals. They're just pigments that live in nature. We consume about 50 of those. And your listeners may be familiar with a carotenoid like um, beta-carotene, for example, which is an essential carotenoid, uh, lycopene, and all of these carotenoids have their um, interest for human health because they do different things for us. And we might come to that later. What was really remarkable in the early stages of our study that when we look at the eye um, and now the brain, we see that there's a, a concentration and a selection of specific carotenoids. And these carotenoids are lutein, zeaxanthin and a very special carotenoid called mesozeaxanthin. So they're complicated names, but basically they're the type of carotenoid pigments that you'd see in foods like spinach or peppers or egg yolk would be our corn related products. Now, so when, when a human consumes these plant-based foods, um, he or she hopefully will digest them. They'll become bioavailable, bioaccessible. They'll go into what I call the taxi system, which is the blood system. And the blood system will deliver these to the target tissues in the body where they are working. Carotenoids and our early interest in carotenoids was for a disease called age-related macular degeneration, which is the leading cause of blindness in, in the Western world. Um, over 80,000, 86,000 people at last count in Ireland have are registered with macular degeneration. And people with macular degeneration lose their central vision, their colour vision. And you were saying that that can be important as you age. We often hear about falls and we think it's to do with, you know, mm. becoming a little more frail, perhaps, which I suppose adds to it um, and a little less strong. But it's, it's actually not being able to tell the difference yeah. between the colours. So the pavement and the road can be confusing. It's something called contrast. So contrast sensitivity is a measure in vision science that we that we use because it's a very sensitive measure to performance and function of vision. So exactly to your point, if you're walking on the sidewalk or on the, the path, um, you know, knowing where that ends and starts, uh, maybe the difference between an elderly person falling or not. And, and all of these things are highly, highly linked. Going back to the carotenoids, um, the whole point of having them is that they will protect the tissues that we need to enhance our vision, like contrast, and protect our vision from degenerating and protect us from developing diseases like macular degeneration. And they do that quite simply because they are, they're like antioxidants, so like sunscreen inside our body. So in the eye, imagine we concentrate at the tissue, the retina, which is like the film of the camera, the piece of the camera that we need, the piece of the eye that we need to work for us to have vision. These nutrients are concentrated there and they work there to kind of keep away the badness, to keep away what we call the free radicals, the oxidative stress damage and to optimise the use of light in our eye. The net result being, as you rightly put that, it has an impact on real time vision related quality of life, which is important for you and me, Claire, but it's also important and becomes more important, of course, as we get older. And to our brain health and not to speed up your 20 yeah. years of <laughs> long, hard research, but you also mm. found that brain degeneration is also linked to a decline in carotenoids in our system. So we hear it time and time again, mm. what we eat and how we eat is truly important. But your research has really 
fed into that, if you'll excuse the pun. Yeah, I suppose we evolved from our work demonstrating that we can enhance vision in macular degeneration in a very real way too. Actually, that's important for general society for, and it's been now used in sports performance, for example. But you're absolutely right. As part of our studies as far back as 2011, um, when we started our European project, the Crest project, we started to look at kind of potentially other applications for carotenoids. And we... Um, identified that the carotenoids were not just in the retina, but they were also in the brain. And then the question became, well, what are they doing there? Is lutein and zeaxanthin important for brain health also? And we, there was a major study done actually uh, in, as part of the TILDA project here in Ireland with Pro- Professor Roseanne Kenny and her team. We collaborated on a project there and uh, we identified that actually from over 5,000 people in Ireland, when, when, when you look at their carotenoid score which we were able to measure and when you look at their cognitive ability so their their memory their attention their reaction time we saw a striking relationship between the the participants in that trial who had high carotenoid score and their cognitive functions their cognitive abilities so that's what we call cross-sectional data and that was kind of the start of this um, research into that whole brain area and then we were the first in the world um, soon after that to work with patients with Alzheimer's disease. So working with my colleague, um, Professor Rihanna Mulcahy, uh, prof in Waterford, University Hospital Waterford, we started to work carefully um, to try and profile carotenoid scores in patients with Alzheimer's disease. And remarkably, we saw that they were so deficient in these particular nutrients. Now, that could be because, as you know well, with Alzheimer's, with the disease itself, you know, dietary patterns change and food consumption change. So it may have just simply been that um, they weren't eating foods containing any of these carotenoids and hence the low score. But we had to go test that. And one way we demonstrated that was when we were able to give them the carotenoids in supplement form, the response was fantastic in terms of being able to up their their carotenoid scores throughout their body, that the blood system, um, their eye, and that's an indicator, of course, of the brain concentration because it's highly correlated. So in other words, if you have high carotenoid in your eye, it means you have high carotenoid in your brain. So we have a a real-time biomarker that we can measure. Um, And and I just think it takes it a step on because all we ever hear is eat your five a day and this just takes it to a a new level. It's telling you what those five should look like and why. And something you said that really blew my mind. Now, don't say which company it is. But we have to be so careful where we're taking your nutritional advice from. You mm. mentioned the colour yellow and the egg yolk. Yeah. And eggs got a really bad rap for being bad for our cholesterol. But that was actually something that was sent out by a cereal That's company right. to stop people eating eggs at breakfast time. Eggs are superfood. And, and e- you know, people, we need to understand cholesterol itself. You know, cholesterol, the word cholesterol, we pro- the initial reaction is, oh, it's bad. You know, cholesterol is essential. We, we need cholesterol, you know, we, but we want more of the good cholesterol and eggs provide good cholesterol. I did a, a study with eggs actually in Waterford and we demonstrated that by taking uh, two eggs a day over an eight week period, we significantly increased cholesterol levels in those participants. But it was the very good cholesterol and it, it had the effect on the HDL in, in, our, in, in the system. So the, the bad cholesterols um, didn't increase. In, in fact, they decreased. Um, and the value of ha- having foods like eggs is that not only you're getting your proteins and everything that go with that, you're getting highly bioavailable type of carotenoids. So there's one thing, and we spoke before about, you know, a salad, for example, that doesn't have um, 
oils or dressings. You know, the, the ability of us as humans to break down those salads and take out the goodness and get those nutrients, carotenoids in this case, delivered to the target tissue is very limited if it's not bioavailable. But eggs are highly bioavailable because of the fats in the egg. So a perfect delivery system for high quality nutrition. And a whole food that's pretty much easy enough to, yeah. to cook. I know people say I can't boil an egg, but um, Marina, Dr. Marina mm. Green, um, she came to do her PhD with you from Mexico um, and she ended up staying. She fell in love with Waterford <laughs> and a man there yeah. um, and the work you're doing, obviously, um, and she's highly involved. But Mexican people do really well in these tests, don't yeah. they? Is that because of the amount of corn they eat? There's a lot of colour in a Mexican diet. Yeah, it's, you're absolutely right. It's a, it's the Actually, we did a study in a place in Mexico called Morelos, just outside of Mexico City. But, um, you know, the socioeconomic environment there is very low in terms of, stand, you know, income and salaries and so on and, and access to food. So they're, they basically get eggs and corn to survive. And... Um, so when we did our assessment of, of diet and in theory we were looking at the a dietary pattern in Ireland versus a dietary pattern in Mexico. And in theory the Irish adult should be consuming significantly more carotenoids because we have access to more of those type of foods. But the Mexican uh, blood levels of carotenoids that we measured were more than double that of the Irish population. You know, it was just a phenomenal finding. So have a fajita night, get a few corn tortillas, get a guacamole on the go um, and a bit of uh, coriander. I couldn't get cilantro out of my head. I don't know why I went American with it there. But yeah, throw it all in and mix it all up. So look, let's get to my tests then. I've said at the start of the show, I've, I've become a bit... At the start of the year, I said, I really want to know, am I performing at my best? And I seem to have attracted all these different tests and testing into my life. And yours was a really interesting one. So we started six months ago, but probably a bit more now. Um, And I was fascinated by the technology you had. So to test the amount of carotenoids in my system, you were able to do a skin test using my fingerprint, Mm. essentially, and look into my eye. Yeah, so... The first thing I'll say to you actually is a successful experiment requires compliance to to the to the study to in this case to the intervention. So I'd like to say well done to you and I think there's a message in that. And what I mean is like I always compare it to like joining the fitness center in January, you know, which is a common phenomenon um here in Ireland we all join the fitness center, but those who kind of stay at it and comply to the exercise and the and the healthy life plan, get great results, but it takes time and commitment. So like a research study requires that too, right? And you did that and you're right. So when you came down to Marina and I and the team in Waterford, um, we tried to kind of take sections out of what would, what would have been normally used in a classic uh, full-blown experiment that we'd work with patients with Alzheimer's or patients with macular degeneration or even the healthy population. So in your case, we... You'll remember Marina profiled your diet and um, very straight straight away we saw that actually like your behaviour with food was very, very good. And on, on, on the plus side of what would be normal in terms of the amount of fruits and vegetables that you would eat. So we, we profiled that and in a typical study we would map that and monitor that for any change over the duration of the study. Yeah, and just case, to let people know, like yeah. that meant Marina had a list of veg, veg and, yeah. and foods and she'd say, how often would you eat? Corn, how often yeah. would you eat spinach? How often? And I had to just kind of think in a week, 
How often would I? But I mean, look, I have a lean in health and wellness. That's why I'm sitting here and doing this radio show. And I do try and focus on cooking as many things as I can myself, as opposed to taking it out of a, a packet. I do focus on adding veg and fruit where I can to my diet, but I certainly don't live like a monk and I get a lot of joy out of food. Um, and it's not something I think about on a constant basis. Mm. So I think that's important to put out there because I think when you look at athletes sometimes, you're like, well, they're very different to someone like me. I'm a busy person. I'm a parent. I'm juggling a lot. I literally do my best most of the time, not all of the time. So I'm interested to see where I'm at on the scale. Yeah, I think I as good as as good as and the compliments you've given you with your diet you're also very normal. I think that's the point and I think that's average. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> we say better than average, but um and so we we're going to show you some of your blood results now, but we did blood analysis, right? So how did we do that? We took the blood sample and that went to the laboratory with Alfonso and Tommy and they will have put that through very sophisticated kind of what we call HPLC. In other words, we were going to quantify how much of these carotenoids, lutein, zeaxanthin and mesozeaxanthin you were carrying around in your taxi system, in your blood system. And you'll also remember um, we did measures in your skin and we did measures in your in your eye, in the target tissue at the macula. And we also did measures around function. So the research question for you, Claire, was even with someone so healthy to begin with, if we were to change that with a supplement intervention, could we change these important parameters related to your health? So the first thing we can look at here, and let me see, can I show you? But this is your kind of, this is a normative database of lutein in blood. This is from, from an Irish sample. And you can see here... Um, there's a score here of 0.194 micromoles per litre. So that would be uh, normal, but quite low. When we look at you, before you went on the supplement, you were at you were more than double that, 0.442. So y- here you can see where, where normal is and, and you're kind of double normal to begin with. Okay, so okay, that, wow. isn't that interesting? Are you yeah. surprised by that? Yeah, I am actually, I am. I mean, I would concentrate on eating well, like I said, but it's not anything over the top. But this tells us something else. You know, this tells us and not to be too negative but how poor we are doing in general society. Because mm. these carotenoid scores are absolute indicators of you know, good nutrition and everything that's connected to that. So they're, they're an indicator of many other type of nutrients. So Yeah, but I say it all the time. It's busy lifestyle. If you're starting off the day with a bowl of cereal, then you're grabbing a sandwich and a coffee at lunch, leaving the office or, you know, on the go, whatever mm. your job is. And then you're coming home and you're throwing something into the oven that's a, a ready meal. Like, there's not a lot of colour there. There's not a lot no. of diversity there. And I completely understand why somebody would do that. But that's why it's important to give them the knowledge and information on the impact that will have in the long term. Absolutely. And the other problem we have, and even if you go out today and your listeners go out today and try, and, and they should try, and we all should try, because good nutrition is the pillar of good health, right? Let's not get away from that. But honestly, Claire, the amount we're getting is less and less and less. It's devolving. You know, the the foods we're consuming are devolving in these active micronutrients because, you know, there's some fantastic farming. We we had this discussion before, but, you know, when you pick a crop and isolate it and, you know, try and make that crop overgrow to because we need to, to supply it. The plant itself will underproduce the goodness in the plant. Yeah. Yeah. And we can see, I mean, you can see yeah. on the labels where you're 
you know, veg is flying in from. And so, mm. yeah, we do get it. So over the, the six months, Here we I go. did supplement. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, as you say, and that's what I always like about you. This isn't necessarily a walk and ad for the supplement. It's nutrition first. Mm. But what were my results six months later? There you go. <laughs> Fantastic. You can see here that you're over um, over double, over 120% improvement in your lutein. So like, so you've taken it to like just a super level. So then the question becomes, so this is lutein, right? We look at the zeaxanthin now in a second because this is, you would get zeaxanthin from different foods and um, egg yolk would be a very good source of zeaxanthin. But you've doubled just in six months, the, the amount of these protective micronutrients in your system that are going to be delivered to your eye and to your brain just by non, being on that supplement for six months. And remember, you didn't stop your diet or change your diet. That was, that was stable throughout the six months that we worked with you. So like we were even surprised to see the level that this went to from someone who had a very good starting point. Wow. Yeah. So looking at zeaxanthin again, same story. Um, the normative score again, this is 0.073 micromoles per litre. So this is what we're measuring in the blood. You're coming out at 0.2. So again, more than double to begin with and follow. Now, there's less zeaxanthin in the supplement, but you can see here a fantastic response again, you know, maybe a 60% improvement in your total zeaxanthin scores in your blood system. So, you know, again, uh, really, really pleased with that. And so... You would expect the blood, we, in science we say the half-life, which is basically connected to the, the, the length of time it will take to get a system saturated and optimised when you optimise the, the target intervention. Uh, blood should increase pretty quickly. You, you know, it has to go into your stomach. From, from the supplement that has to be absorbed, we create what's called a, a micelle, which is basically like a delivery package. I call it Pac-Man. And it goes on its journey into the, the lymph system, the blood system, and it's available then for delivery, right? Um, but a real nice uh, new thing to discuss is that we also now can measure these nutrients in the skin because the skin is a tissue that accumulates these carotenoids. And remember I said about the antioxidant effects that are beneficial in the skin as well. So we can measure that. You remember we, we measured it on, on the system that we have using the life meter. And um, here you can see your starting point is at about 400. And just in six months, we got you up to... Um, nearly 600. So, And will that continue to climb or is there a time where it kind of plateaus? It'll plateau in the skin. Um, I, you're certainly not at your plateau at six months. I think I'm, I hit my plateau at about 12 months in, in my skin carotenoid score. And, um, but it's great. The nice thing about the skin is like you'll remember the invasiveness of coming and getting your blood taken and the cost of getting that done in the lab. That's not really usable and feasible you know, across society. But now we have technology. I have it here. You can see the the life meter, which is a system that you simply just put your hand on, your mm. finger on, and we can measure the carotenoids in your skin. And Marina did that at the baseline for you and before you went on um, your supplement and you can see the improvement there. And that's why you're calling for certification in supplements because there are so many supplements on so many shelves but people need to be really careful what they're taking and why they're taking it. Absolutely. I mean the certification piece around supplements is something that I have a, a passion for. It's something that that's supported at our university now with supplement certified and look at 
at one level, people may say, well, he just wants to talk about the supplement that he studied and that the university has licensed out. And because that, that's where that conflict of interest is. It's with, you know, the university. It's not with me personally. Um, but that's a good thing because it means that we know what we've done. But what we learned along that way is that when you look at kind of the other supplements that are out there and some of them might be more expensive, some of them might be much cheaper. If you don't, if, A, if you don't know that they're stable, well, then the patients or the general population can't benefit from having them. But B, you have to know that they're available and bioavailable. We spoke about Marina today. Her whole PhD was on the bioavailability of these carotenoids. So when you actually take a supplement, do you get a response? So knowing what's in the supplement is key. And the challenge with these really special nutrients, Claire, is, you know, if they're not formulated correctly, they will oxidise. And that's why when I'm giving my lecture about this now, I'm unapologetic in saying that the science begins at the source. So when it's farmed from the marigolds in, in, in Mexico, these beautiful flowers, that's where this begins. They come from the marigolds and they have to be extracted from the marigold petals, these lutein and zeaxanthin, mesozeaxanthin carotenoids. And then they have to go to a factory, basically, where they get encapsulated into a capsule. And if it's, if it's not managed safely throughout that process, by the time it gets into the pharmacy or into the doctor's office, you could have what I call a smarty, no, no carotenoids. And we have to protect against that. So Yeah, and especially when we're talking about long-term health, we're living longer, but what sort of quality of life are we having? Um, and, you know, something I always love to say is, is food is medicine and nutrition is so, so important. So... Look, thank you. It was a real privilege for me to get access to information like this about myself. But again, I just want to share. I just focus on, you know, eating well to the best of my ability. And your research shows that that can that can really pay off. Um, So I think it's a really good message to put out there. Professor John Nolan, where can people find out more? So people can, on my website, profjohnnolan.com, all the published studies are there, including the new work we've done on uh, Alzheimer's disease. Um, and if you go to that website, you'll get everything you need to know. And um, we just look forward to people in Ireland and people across the world benefiting from this research, as long as it's translated safely and correctly. Well, thank you to you and to Dr. Marina Green from the Nutri- Nutrition Research Centre in Ireland. Professor John Nolan, thank you very much again. Thank you. God bless. Bye bye. Alive and kicking on News Talk. Now, from scaling glaciers, climbing mountains, volunteering in Tanzania, and abseiling down a lighthouse, my next guest is no stranger to testing herself physically and mentally. Diagnosed with a rare form of bone cancer when she was just 16 years old, and now with an amputation taking place just last year, Nikki Bradley has gone on to become one of Ireland's leading motivational speakers and inspirational figures. And I'm delighted to say that Nikki joins me on the line now. Nikki, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be here. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, You've quite the story. And if you'll forgive me, I'm going to jump to your cancer diagnosis in your teens. And I apologise because you're obviously so much more than that. And I talk a lot on the show about people being so much more than their diagnosis. But that seems to be a big life change for you. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. Okay, so I basically my life changed in the space of about 10 minutes, 20 years ago, uh, 20 plus years ago, actually. Um, I was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma when I was 16. And hearing that news 
I suppose didn't just change my life, changed everybody around me's life as well. Um, and all the plans that I had went out the window. Um, I was immediately a cancer patient and had to go straight into chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and then having quite a large tumor removed um, from my pelvis, which resulted in me having to go to the UK to have that removed. So the tumor was obviously Ewing's, Ewing's sarcoma. Um, and it was so rare that surgeons in Ireland weren't comfortable dealing with it. So that's where my treatment in the UK started. And even that made everything so much more scary. The fact that, you know, the incredible surgeons that we have in Ireland hadn't seen this before. Now, obviously, since then, it's over 20 years ago, they, they, it has come across their desk. But back then, I was one of 17 in the whole island of Ireland that was diagnosed with this cancer. So immediately... I was isolated. That's that was my first feeling that that really strong feeling of isolation of having nobody to turn to that would understand. And that's hard to deal with when you're 16 turning 17. But I had no choice. And that was kind of the beginning of my understanding of how strong you can be when there's no other option. Um, and yeah, I thankfully have been cancer free since then. But I certainly wasn't surgery free since then. Um, the radiotherapy that I had for six short weeks all those years ago basically destroyed the bone in my right hip. And I've spent about 15 years trying to salvage the damage that was caused. So you had two hip replacements that didn't solve the issue. So you underwent last year rotation plasty. Tell us a little bit about what that is. Yeah, so I just to quickly say I'd, I'd had two total right, right hip replacements. As you mentioned, neither of them ended up working. Um, I also had a metal plate put in from my hip down as far as my knee caused by um, a really bad break to the femur. And that femur break was was caused because of the, the lack of use in the leg and um, the bone just softened and that broke. And I had a number of other surgeries as well. So and all of those surgeries were almost deemed emergency surgeries. I was never given an option with any of them, whereas the rotation plasty was the first surgery that I felt I actually had a choice in. Um, so the pandemic obviously caused huge issues for everybody. But for me personally, it caused massive issues with my health and my pain skyrocketed when all the services kind of ceased to exist in terms of, say, the gym, when they all closed. I didn't realize how much I was relying on exercise um, for pain relief even though I had spoken about it in years previous, but I, it was only when the, those services were taken away that I, I truly began to appreciate the power of exercise. And during that first lockdown, I started experiencing pain in my lower back, up in my neck and in my hip. And all of that pain was coming from the damage to my hip. So I spoke to my UK surgeons and I was given three options. One was full right leg amputation. It's called hindquarter amputation. That's when they remove absolutely everything, including part of your pelvis. So I wouldn't have been able to avail of a prosthetic and I would have always had to live my life with one leg. So that was, that was a little extreme for me to opt for at that point. The second was a 3D printed hip, which sounded cool. I immediately opted for that at the start when I was given that option because the thought of something being printed, I, it just in my head, it just sounded incredible. Um, but I was later told that because I'd had an infection in a previous prosthesis, um, that it was going to be too risky. Um, and then I, the only other option was a rotation plasty. So when I Googled, and I'm sure your listeners will as well as I'm speaking, when I Googled rotation plasty, I got the shock of my life. 
it was the images that I saw were terrifying. Um, so it's essentially a form of amputation where they remove the lower half of the leg, rotate it 180 degrees and reattach. Um, and for it was used for me to to basically try and find a way to allow me to use my hips. So at the moment I have my knee joint is actually serving as my hip joint and my ankle joint is serving as my knee. Now that sounds absolutely bonkers, <laughs> but when you look it up, it'll make more sense. Um, so yes, yeah, so over the past over a year and a half, I've been getting used to life as somebody with the leg on back to front. <laughs> and you're talking about these things quite matter of factly, almost, you know, as if you're talking about different parts of the country you lived. And I, I know, obviously, you know, years have passed. You've made a lot of peace with this. This is a radio interview. I'm asking you to kind of you know, rush through these things so we can we can fit it all in. But I mean, these are massive things to take on. How did you manage your mental health through all this? Not only getting a cancer diagnosis at 16, but all the little blips along the way, the surgeries, the things that you were trying not working, ending in, a, in an amputation. How did you navigate through all of that? So as you say, yes, obviously I'm skimming the surface here with a lot of um, the things I've been through, but I I very much had a single moment in time that changed my way of thinking. Um, I was in Australia in 20, 2011, and during that time I spent six weeks in hospital. And while I was in hospital, I had um, the prosthesis, so the, the hip prosthetic that they'd put in, um, I had that actually removed because it was massively infected. Now, I knew going over to Australia that there was an issue with my hip, but I'd spent a full year traipsing up and down from Donegal to Dublin, having meeting after meeting, x-rays, everything under the sun. And they couldn't they couldn't quite figure out exactly what type of infection we were dealing with. So I felt felt that I, I would continue to find myself at different phases of my life where I felt I was at the mercy of A, my body and B, my doctors. You know, I would... I was just living for the next appointment and I didn't want that to be my legacy or, you know, what I was all about. So when the opportunity came to go to Australia, I said, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. I got the all clear to, to travel from my doctor and I went over. And during that trip, I received incredibly sad news that my grandmother had passed away and that she would be buried before I would make it back to Ireland. That to me was the single standout moment where for the first time, I felt close to just giving up and throwing in the towel. And genuinely, it was the first time where I, I I said the words, why, why me? And even though it was my grandmother that had passed away, it was probably quite a selfish reaction. But I was there on the other side of the world, away from all of my family, dealing with humongous surgery. And on top of that, I was dealing with this incredible loss. And I remember so clearly sitting in my hospital bed, just bawling my eyes out. And after I, I allowed myself to, to grieve, I sat and had a good talking to myself. And I just said, you know what, whatever happens from this day forward, I, I'm taking a vow to myself that I'm just going to I'm just going to roll with it. I'm clearly somebody that has been put on this earth to be tested. And I don't mean that in any way religious or anything like that. I, I literally mean just with, you know, if I was to list out the things that have happened since 2002, I could be here all day. And I just thought I could feel sorry for myself and give up or I could get on with it and take as much learnings, as many learnings as I can from each of these experiences. And thankfully, 
that way of thinking has stayed with me all these years later. And there has been huge, huge ups, but also huge downs that I've had to deal with over the years since. And that way of thinking has really got me through. And how does that look in daily practice or is it a daily practice? You made that decision then, but then did you have to continually build on that? And I'm sure it's not linear. You you fall back, you, you know, you learn again, you go again. How did you really begin to embed it into being who you are, not just somebody you wanted to be? It very much was a daily practice. Um, I, I am a positive person by nature. Now, I say that I'm I'm very positive with the big things, but I do like to have a moan every now and again. Um, anybody that knows me will absolutely agree with that. But yeah, it has been something that I, after I made that decision in that hospital bed, even when I got back to Ireland, I had to spend another two weeks in hospital, isolated from my family. And there were a number of things that happened just specifically around that event. And it actually, it genuinely just felt easier. That decision just unlocked something within me. That sounds incredibly cheesy, but it's true. And I used that as my, that pain and that, the strength that I needed to get through that particular moment in time was where I, that was my benchmark moving forward, you know, and every time something happened, I would look back on that and I would often say, I might be feeling a bit down now, but remember what happened in 2011. If I could get through that, I can get through this. And I would often just, you know, I'd yo-yo back and forward with those thoughts. And I genuinely haven't felt that why me feeling since, because I've had that to fall back on that that way of thinking, which it's, it's certainly something that you have to practice actively every day. And you also wanted to turn your learnings not only into personal development, but to share what you were experiencing. Tell us a little bit about your campaign, Fighting Fit for Ewings. So that was set up in 2013. Um, Obviously, I'd come back from Australia. I'd done one or two things and I had decided that I was going to look at exercise from a different point of view. So that's in 2013, I was still on quite a lot of pain medication. I was dealing with severe nerve damage caused by um, the surgery when I had my tumor removed. And I didn't want to be somebody that relied heavily on pain medication for the rest of my life. I wanted to find another option. So I sat down with a physiotherapist and a personal trainer. And between the three of us, we devised a three month training plan. It was very much experimental. I would go to the gym three times a week for an hour each time and I would train with my trainer and we would look at strengthening the rest of my body to see if that would alleviate some of the pain that I was experiencing in my right hip. What I wasn't expecting by the end of that three months was the huge improvement in my mental health. I knew that I would feel physically stronger, but I kind of didn't really think that much about how much mentally stronger I would feel. And by the end of the three months, I was in love with this form of exercise that we were doing. So this was around when CrossFit was starting to become popular in Ireland. Um, you know, women wanting physical strength was not was not something that was shied away from by women, that it was very much embraced. And I loved that. I, like one of the little challenges we did was pull-up challenges, um, chin-ups, you know, stuff that I never would have attempted before. And at the end of that, we looked at increasing the, the adventure within this. So that's where the campaign really came from. It's it's an awareness campaign set around physical challenges um, and designed to highlight the um, importance of exercise for rehabilitation. So some of the fun things I've been able to do through the campaign was um, a Guinness World Record attempt in Holland, 
scaling a route of the sole Hamiokal glacier in Iceland, Four Peak Challenge in 2013, the fan dance in Wales. There's so many fun things that we we attempted. And then not everything worked. Some things, well, most things actually we figured out a way. And that was kind of part of it, that we adapted as we went. Um, but I really, the, the whole purpose of being so public with all of this was that I wanted, especially young girls, young girls that are the same age that I was when I was diagnosed to find my story and find strength from it. Um, because there's so many young people out there that are being given the same diagnosis that I was. And it can, as I mentioned in the beginning, it can be a very isolating experience. And there's a message for everybody about being resilient when life throws you curveball after curveball and you get to that rock bottom moment where you think, why me? I mean, that's a universal message. Um the idea of reframing exercise and, and why we do it. And, and when we feel strong in ourselves, we feel strong in our mind. That, again, is universal. But I think also one of your most incredible messages is don't underestimate yourself. I mean, I, I reckon there would be people that would write off somebody with a prosthetic or a hip that causes them a huge amount of pain that they wouldn't really be able to walk the block, whereas you've done mini marathons, four peaks challenges, abseil down the side of lighthouses. You don't let things hold you back. You give it a go. Yeah. And you know what? And everybody is is different in their thinking around this. But as you say, resilience is something that is universal. Like being being, being resilient is it's amazing to, to ha- find that strength. Not a single person in the world will make it through their life without facing some sort of setback or adversity um, and being able to basically just shift your thinking. And instead of feeling that pity feeling and that why me, just think, what can I learn from this? It's going to happen one way or the other. Um, and that's a big thing that whether you go into it kicking and screaming or you go into it with a positive mindset, Whatever is happening will happen regardless. Um, and the the piece around, you know, some people writing you off when they see you, I actually, I use that as fuel. Um, you know, if somebody tells me I can't do something, to me, that is like, thank you. I will 100% achieve this because of what you've just said. An example of that, I was buying a bag of coal, but let's say two years ago, and I walked up to the counter to pay for it and the guy behind the counter just took one look at me and saw the crutches and said, oh, you won't be able to carry that. I'll get somebody to to do that for you. And he just in that moment, he just assumed that I was a too, you know, disabled when he saw the crutches and be too weak. And I just smiled and was like, no, no, you're OK. I'll do it. Now, I nearly put my back out doing it. <laughs> I did not care. I would have walked over that hole on my back if it meant proving him wrong. And in fairness, it actually became quite a funny story through my my campaign. Um, I tagged the shop and, we, you know, we had a lot of banter over and back and it became quite a, you know, a little bit of daily inspiration for other people. But it is, you know, that's I always think there's there's always two ways to look at any situation and there's always a choice in how you deal with it. You are listening to Alive and Kicking and I'm joined by motivational speaker Nikki Bradley. And we'll take a quick break and we'll be back after this. Alive and Kicking on News Talk. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking with me, Claire McKenna, and I'm joined by motivational speaker Nikki Bradley. 
So, Nikki, let's get on to Searsha. That's the name you have given your prosthetic leg. And something else I wanted to highlight is the challenge you said you would face going into certain situations, like stepping out for the first time at a swimming pool or taking on the stares of others. Do you think that this is just par for the course, that it's just human nature that people will stare and have a look? Or is there a message you have for people? Can we handle situations like this better as a society? So my own dealings with this. So obviously I've I've always I've been on crutches for well over a decade. So I would always have little glances. But outside of the crutches, when you looked at me, my body didn't look any different apart from I had a leg length discrepancy. However, when I had my rotation plasty, I overnight I became very visibly disabled. Um, and with that came a huge amount of stairs. So for the first eight months post-op, I didn't have the prosthetic because it hadn't been made yet. So everywhere I went, I had to go with my leg on show. Now, any amputee listening will know that it's very, you're, you feel very vulnerable going out like that. It's one thing to have a stump, but to have your, your leg on back to front where people can actually see that the leg is on the other way around. That's where the real stairs came in because you could see them trying to figure out what was going on. I struggled with that enormously for the first probably half of the year last year. Um, I really did struggle and I knew that I was very close to not being able to leave the house. There was one particular incident that happened early on after my surgery where I was in a supermarket and I was at the fridge picking an item and I could see in the reflection of the glass a couple behind me like openly staring at my leg and I deal with those situations very different now but in that moment I was quite close to having a panic attack and I don't normally suffer from them but I I knew something negative was on its way um and I felt like I'm a grown woman and I happened to be with my mum at the time and she, she walked over to a different aisle to get something and her leaving my side was enough to bring me to tears I could feel the panic rising and as I say like I'm a grown woman I should be able to stand in a supermarket by myself but I almost reverted back to being that 16 year old again that that needed her mum so by the time she came back I I just asked for the keys and I had to go out to the car and again I ended up finding myself in a very specific situation where I knew I had to make a conscious decision to move forward with a different way of thinking because otherwise I genuinely wouldn't have left the house so instead of brewing over that feeling I made myself go out the very next day and the day after that and that was the only way that I I stopped caring as much about the staring. And to answer your question, I'm I'm on the fence with how I feel about people staring because there's no malice behind it. They're genuinely just curious. Children do it openly. Like it's actually hilarious how children nearly like strain their necks. They're they're staring so much, but it's just because it's open curiosity. And to be honest, adults are the same. Now, what I would say is if you do pass somebody that's in a wheelchair or on crutches or has some sort of just looks different, rather than stare at the part of them that's different, they would really appreciate if you made eye contact, because that's one thing that I've really struggled with. Now that I'm comfortable with my body, I want to make eye contact and smile because that's what I always would have done when I pass somebody. And I find that when I try and make eye contact with a lot of people, they they feel so awkward that they just look to the ground. And all that does then is make me feel bad. So if if I could say one thing is just just make eye contact, 
and and smile and keep walking and have your your little glance as you do it if you want to but it would make a big difference to that person on the receiving end the amount of truth bombs and life tips you've dropped in the last 20 minutes um i'm going to come back to this time and time again people can find out more at the motivationfactory.ie and you'll find nikki on instagram she's at nikki underscore bradley underscore speaks and I'm so glad you do. Nikki Bradley, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to all my guests, to my producer Aoife Breen and to Hugo De Silva-Scott who was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking on News Talk.